This is in Beverly Hills. This is Baghdad. I was living in a, a building that was like half bombed out by standards of the time, 2005 and six Iraq. We had a pretty good. Can you tell us something about um, what it felt like to first go to Afghanistan? We went out there and then we almost got blown up by a type of IED. And I was like, man, if I had died going to your fucking promotion, I would have haunted you forever. After about 10 years of full-time service, I realized that the lessons I use in day-to-day life and the ones that I think are valuable for other people come from another part of the military, what I call the hidden side of the military. Resiliency is just one in a, in a set of successful tools you need to have. And I wanted to focus more on how you develop other traits, identify five specific traits that can help people get where they want to go. Welcome to Brick by Brick episode 10 with John McLaughlin, former U.S. Army captain and author. Hi, John. Welcome to Brick by Brick. I'm very grateful for you taking the time of your day to come on. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. So you've served in the U.S. Army and you've been all around the world doing that, including Afghanistan and Iraq. Since coming home, you have written a book called How to Deal with Damn Near Anything, A Paratrooper's Guide to Life which I'm sure that has already started to spark interest in people's <laughs> minds as to what that's about. <laughs> What's the first thing, right? Getting a decent title to get people's attention. <laughs> no, thank that's you a great for title. having me. I, I appreciate the, the time to come and chat about this. Um, it's been a very interesting experience. So I, I didn't want to write a book when I first left the military. It wasn't part of my plans at all. But when I left after about 10 years of full-time service, I realized there was a gap between what the classic military stories tell and those stories are told for good reason, but they're an incomplete telling of what goes on in the military. And while places like Iraq and Afghanistan are experiences I'll always take with me and they matter, they are not the kind of lessons I use in day-to-day life now. The lessons I use in day-to-day life and the ones that I think are valuable for other people come from another part of the military, what I call the hidden side of the military. It's all about training and development. It's about dealing with the types of challenges you encounter in day-to-day life not the types of challenges when people are actively trying to kill you. So I, I absolutely respect and have served with the type of people who wrote those books and live those experiences. But resiliency is just one in a, in a set of successful tools you need to have. And I wanted to focus more on how you develop other traits, identified five specific traits that can help people get where they want to go. Interesting. Okay, I think that's a great way to look at things. Um, and as we were briefly discussing beforehand, um, I think you're right in saying that the David Goggins of the world have, they are very useful for a certain thing, which is like making sure you don't give up. But there's a point in time when you need to use different skills to get through things. And it's not just about brute force. Yeah, I, when I first got um, out of the military, so intensity is a virtue at times. And those times are going to be more frequent in the military than in most other places. Now, there's certain job fields, sure, where intensity is going to be more valued than others. It all depends on what you do. But intensity is not the solution to every problem. And I've served with guys like David Goggins, Jocko Wilnick. I was in an airborne infantry unit. Intensity was an important part of what we did, and it's something that I summon when I need it now. But I found when I got out, not only was that not what I needed to do to be successful around the people that I was working with, that wasn't what other people were lacking in their toolkit. Sure, they were less intense than your average paratrooper or Navy SEAL, but it wasn't about lack of intensity. So when I first got out of the full-time Army, I went to law school on a a, something called GI Bill, piece of legislation that gave a lot of education benefits to to military folks. And I was blunt, sarcastic. The types of traits that were effective in the military, people were not necessarily feeling that all the time uh, in their regular lives. And And they're completely reasonable to feel that way. So what I realized was the type of thing I was doing was a default setting for me, but it's not a default setting for most people. So I took a step back. Like, I'm not being effective. I was doing great personally. Like My career was going fine, but I wasn't able to help people overcome challenges that I knew I could help with. But I wasn't getting to a point where what I was saying was actually of use to them. So I took a step back and I thought, okay, they're not able to do these things, not because of any problem they have, not because of any inherent lack of talent. It's because nobody's taught them. Nobody's trained them. And the reason I'm able to do it is because I was trained to do it. That's it. There's not some magic special, you know, no fairy godmother in a military helmet came down and tapped me on the shoulder. You know, I got reps. I got practice and experience with people who already knew how to do this. 
So how could I encapsulate that knowledge in a way that would be useful to them? So it's about focusing on that development side of things. And I identified five specific traits that I thought encapsulated what the military trains and develops people on in a way that is unique. First, I looked at, okay, why don't people have this skill set? Right? What's the gap? Is it, plus, is it just me anecdotally or does research actually back this up? So I wanted to make sure because, you know, when you first start to write a book, two things you want to make sure. Nobody else has written the same book. And the worst thing I could do is write a book people read that was wrong. So I wanted to go through and make sure that my anecdotal experience was lining up with what research, which could be kind of limited, but exists into these things actually showed. And so I looked at the, why schools don't teach this, why jobs and workplaces don't develop this, and then how the military has specific traits that it develops that fills that gap. Before we get into those traits, which I'm keen to hear about, and as you're saying that, I was trying to guess what they might be. <laughs> I've got a few ideas, but can you tell us a bit more about your time in the military? Sure. So I had never planned to join. Um, not out of any, I never had a dislike or anything. My dad was in the military before I was born, but I basically grew up with my grandma. So not the most military centric of households, but we weren't exactly <laughs> throwing on like old war movies or anything. Um, I joked that I knew a lot about, uh, um, old detective TV shows, but not a lot about traditionally like military or manly things like car repair, or home repair, or anything like that. So I wasn't necessarily <laughs> considering the military and then nine 11 happened. And at that time I had planned to be a journalist. And I took a step back and thought, you know, maybe I want to be actively doing the thing instead of writing about the thing happening. I thought, how can I do that in a way that, that feels like I'm really contributing? So I became an Arabic linguist, went to the military's language school located in California, learned Arabic, and then went to first Iraq with one unit and then got stationed out in Italy with a different unit, became a paratrooper, and went to Afghanistan with that unit. And after having gone to each of them once... I thought I have a writing background before I was a speech writer when I was in undergrad. And, you know, I've got some other things I want to develop. I can stay in the military part time. I don't have to give this up completely. So I, I got out and was in the military part time. I've done a, a couple different legal jobs. I'm an adjunct professor as part of the uh, University of Maryland global campus, they call it. They're remote, specific for me, the remote MBA program, teach a law and ethics class there and have been really focused on developing people, whether as an adjunct professor or whether in my day job or whether through efforts related to the book also. That's amazing that you found a sort of thing to do next since leaving the army. It took a while. It took a while. I, um, yeah. I, I realized one of the most fulfilling things about being in the military is not, obviously we talk about a lot of high-minded values and those values are real, but you don't walk around every day being talking about freedom all the time. Like, what actually gives you that day-to-day -day satisfaction is working with people and developing and helping people out, especially junior soldiers. And as you move forward in your career, you don't have as much interaction with junior soldiers anymore. You know, you start to get make your way up in the, in the pyramid. You know, you've got different jobs and there's reasons for that. But writing the book allowed me to kind of dive into what makes effective mentorship, what makes an effective person in a, in a general sense, and to continue working on those types of things that I enjoyed so much back when I was doing more of that in my day job. Can you tell us something about um, what it felt like to first go to Afghanistan? Because um, I find that those that area of the world fascinating. It is. Because it's so different. In Iraq and Afghanistan are incredibly different. I, it's understandable that they get lumped together because of the, um, what, how the timelines of each individual war worked out. So I understand why. You know, what did I say at the beginning? Iraq and Afghanistan but very different places. So Afghanistan specifically was, we were trying to, whereas in Iraq, we were trying to give them back or help them get back something they had before. You know, before they had sort of descended into a dictatorship, they were a much more fully functioning country. If you go back far enough, they were a seat of learning, incredibly developed, not just for by regional standards, but by global standards. It had been some time since that was true though. So, but there was a, in some cases, living memory of some of that, and at least a uh, a history of that, that people wanted to get back. So that was Iraq, Afghanistan, completely new, completely new. Modern civilization had not come to large parts of that country, including the parts that I was in, which was the eastern side near the Pakistani border, in order to stop terrorist groups from operating out of that area. We were trying to bring things to that part of the world that it didn't necessarily have experience with before, completely different challenge. And it was it was, it turns, uh, 
like confusing, fulfilling, bewildering, like just trying to have these conversations, like in Iraq, I could go around, have conversation with women all the time in Arabic. In Afghanistan, there's almost no mixing of genders, almost none. Mm. So we're talking about just a different stage of development. I'm not trying to be too harsh. It's not necessarily coming from judgment. Um, although obviously I think certain areas like that were, were ripe for change. But just from a strict neutral point of view, that the gap between where they were and modern society was vast. So trying to introduce those things at a speed that would actually be helpful was a challenge. I mean, not necessarily when we got right, you know, like, you know, that's a whole other thing I can get into. But it was a it was learning about a completely different way of existing as a, as a culture. And that alone made it a very fascinating, worthwhile experience. What surprised you the most about the differences in culture? Um, for Afghanistan, it was probably the, you can read about something, but till you see it and experience it firsthand, the tribal nature of things. And there was a point in human history where people banded together that tightly with people they knew because survival required that type of setup. And it makes it incredibly difficult for anything from the outside to come in. Good, bad, ugly. Because a lot of times these folks weren't, they weren't actively joining. The, the Taliban would show up and say, we want all of your, you know, we want volunteers and people interested would volunteer and off they go. And the Taliban will come back later and say, we want more volunteers. Well, all the volunteers, at least if that happens two or three times, are already gone. So then they start coercing and threatening. So a lot of times these people were trying to live a separate life, but they just weren't able to because the guys with the guns said no. So okay. that was probably the biggest surprise for Afghanistan. And that, and honestly, when modern society doesn't exist, it is so naturally beautiful. And I'm not saying we need to get rid of, you know, I live near a major road. Apologies if you can hear some of that uh, during our conversation. <laughs> but it was so pristine naturally. And seeing, especially seeing it from the air, from helicopters or from some lower flying really? craft was a special experience. It is a beautiful, beautiful place. It would be beautiful anyway, but especially given the total lack of pollution. They had Highway 1, at least when I was there, and there was no Highway 2. Uh, so <laughs> it was basically the only paved road in the entire part of the country I was in. So yeah, it was it was just a look into a, a different way of life and especially beautiful from like a natural beauty point of view. Yeah, such a shame that, there you go, there's my road now. <laughs> Um, it's such a shame that it's war torn because I've heard that so many times. That it's like a beautiful country. It really, if um, there is, if they can get to a place where they can have tourists come in safely, like it would be a tremendous place. And then, of course, obviously, a million people be like the pictures you see of Mount Everest. And there's a giant line, there's trash everywhere. But the key <laughs> is going to be to get in after it's safe and before uh, you're shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of people. So, yeah, but yeah there's, there's amazing. It, I was very fortunate to get to experience that place. So as an Arabic linguist, first of all, which type of Arabic did you learn? Um, you we learned what's called or... modern standard Arabic, which is okay. understood by mostly everyone. Um, the former French colony is kind of a different thing because the, a, a mix of French and Arabic has arisen from those places. That's its own language in a lot of ways. But for the rest of the, the Arabic-speaking world, MSA can definitely be understood. And usually the dialect they speak is some relatively approachable variation on msa so okay yeah it's one thing that, that was that was a lot of fun because people definitely um they they don't expect anyone who's not of arabic you know background to speak arabic so i got a lot of confused there and i've forgotten almost all of it, <laughs> i hate to say but and i used to, oh no well, i used to feel bad about that but it you know it just didn't link up with my goals moving forward and part of talk about this in the book but like you know, it, you have to make that decision at each stage. You cannot just go off of inertia from previous things. And obviously, given the choice, I would love to still be able to speak the language. If you drop me in country for, I can't, six months later, I'd be able to speak it very well again. Um, yeah. So the, it's, yeah, yeah. it's floating around back there somewhere. But hey. you, you have to be able to make a decision based off what's best going forward. I, I jokingly talk about the grocery line, right? You get in line at the grocery store, you wait a little while, and they open up a new line. And it's not like you're going to be first in the new line, right? And you're like, you know, the new line's going to be faster, but you're like, I've been standing in this line for a while. That doesn't matter. <laughs> like your, your, your goal is to get out of the grocery store. So you may feel like you've invested in, in your current decision, but you have to be able to step back enough to know that that investment made sense at the time. But this new option is better, even if it means not seeing through 
completely what you'd already done. Like that served its purpose, right? You, what were you going to do? Not stand in line at all? So you made the best choice you could at the time. But circumstances have changed and you need to be able to change with them. Yeah, that's always a good thing to remember because people always forget about what's that called? Sunk cost fallacy. Exactly. Or like that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, as an Arabic linguist in the US Army, what was your sort of role? What was your, I'm sure you did loads of different roles. Well, I know you did. Honestly, but. my main role was go out and talk to people because there weren't that many of us in terms of Arabic linguists. So, I was in Baghdad for my year deployment in Iraq and we would get intelligence about so-and-so's a bad guy. So such and such is about to happen. Go out and talk to people. Sometimes it was as a liaison. So you talk with the local police, local army, local government officials, et cetera. Sometimes, but most of the time it's just about talking to people on the street, you know, get out there and, you know, see what they're willing to sell you. And people had very varying uh, opinions on us. Um, I think the one that captured it was the best was I, I was talking with a Iraqi guy, probably late twenties. And he said, I wish you weren't here, but I don't want you to leave. <laughs> and I was like, I get that, that I understand. I, how would we feel and for me, you know, as an American, it would be, you know, it would be bad in a lot of ways to feel like you had to have another country's people come in and help you get your, your, your act together. So I understand it's not just pride. I want to give it more credit than that. The desire for self-sufficiency. Totally understand that. But also, if we left, everything was going to go haywire. And this is in 2006 when I was there. So um, back when things were really, really, really unstable still. So, yeah, yeah that was, a, you know, we, we, we don't want you here, but we don't want you to leave, uh, was, I think, the perfect summary of their, their attitude. And again, I totally understand where they were coming from. So would you leave, so you'd be living in like a compound? We were sort of living thing. in a former, uh, so Saddam's intelligence headquarters was on the southeast, excuse me, kind of part of the city. And we bombed it, but we didn't bomb everything. So we were living in, I was living in a, a building that was like half bombed out. So you just wouldn't go up above a certain floor because that was all rubble. I mean, we'd go look around some, of course, right? Um, you put a bunch of guys in their 20s and, uh, you know, we're going to go look around the bombed out building. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where we would live is places like that. And then just in Baghdad, what's that? Or like in, in Baghdad or yep. towns outside. Oh, I was in and Baghdad. Like, we had, we had troops, um, outside as well, but obviously we had more in the city itself. So that usually you were living indoors and we were lucky. Our base did not get muddy. That was the main quality of life thing. I would, where you sleep is fine. It's kind of whatever. If you're indoors, you're indoors. That's a good, that's a good standard to have met. But what I really liked avoiding was some of the other bases, anytime it rained, it got insanely muddy um, where you couldn't walk around. Um, so, no, our base was luckily not like that. So, overall, by, by standards of the time, 2005 and six Iraq, we had a pretty good. I'll tell you, I don't care. Whoa. What do I care? The seventh floor of the building's bombed out. No, 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 doesn't bother me. I mean, we didn't, don't get me wrong, we didn't have like, you know, like plumbing everywhere and, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, uh, we were protected against the heat as much as anyone could be. Which there's no such thing as full protection against that kind of heat, but all in all, it was, wasn't bad at all. Well, look, if you can find a positive about your accommodation in Baghdad, then I think most people can well, find a positive spin on. I mean, perspective is a hell of a thing, right? Like the, um, the perspective itself is not one of the book traits, but it kind of underpins some. It underpins the military experience. I used to joke that the military changes its slogans you know, once every I don't know, five or ten years, and I used to joke that the next one could be it. It could be worse. And then it should have a, a picture of someone like a World War II trench, because like a World War One trench, like there's no there's no situation I could possibly face that would have been anywhere near as bad as what those guys went through. So, if I, at one time I got to meet John McCain, uh, U.S. senator, and I wrote his office just saying, "Hey, I admire this guy. I'd like to meet him." Said he usually meets pilots who flew the same type of aircraft as him, but if he has time, he'll meet you. And I came back, and he made some time, and. I was talking with him like pretty briefly. And at one point he's asked me like how hot it was over there. And um, he was like, oh man, that sounds terrible. It wasn't that bad. It, this guy had been a prisoner of war for years. He's like, well, at least it wasn't as hot as it could have been. You know, if I had been in Iraq instead, like the ability to, to, to keep perspective like that is very helpful. Yeah, that's incredible. At the same that's time, you're inspiring. allowed to self-pity. One thing I try to remind people of is just because other, you could always find someone who has it worse, but you don't want to take that to the extreme of, 
never allowing yourself to feel bad or never allowing yourself to feel aggrieved. Like sometimes somebody did do something shitty to you or you're in a situation that's not good. And just because there's other people in other countries or situations that are worse doesn't mean you're not allowed some level of self-pity, but you want to, you want to let that flow through you, get it out of your system and then turn it into something productive instead. But yeah, just because, just because uh, I don't want to sound like I'm advocating too much for nobody, nobody being allowed to feel bad for themselves because there's always somebody who has it worse. There's, there's a time and a place for that type of, uh, that type of attitude. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely something I've thought about a lot, actually. It's like, when do you actually, you have to learn in your life when to implement that because on the scale of like too much to not enough. And there's a, a, a golden zone where it works. Yeah. But, a lot of it is the, the so not to jump ahead, but the first trait in the book is self-awareness because you really have to map out your own personality, not in some sort of literal spreadsheet or literal map type of way, but you have to get at least the broad outlines of your own personality clearly in sight because that allows you to know which dials to turn which way and how much. And yeah, because there's definitely people who are maxed out on the self-pity scale. Okay. <laughs> like, yes, this thing you went through, whether it's a breakup or you didn't get a promotion or a business venture didn't work out, like this thing is objectively bad and I feel for you, but it's been six months. So maybe you should move on. <laughs> like, so there's, you know, and there's people for whom they, they push themselves. The David Goggins is the world, like we're talking about. People for whom pushing themselves intensely is a core value. You have to tell those people when to ease up. So it's very much about knowing what your default settings are so you can base the rest of your development off of those settings. So when's a time when you've, um, I'm guessing there was a time when you were younger when you could be and then was there like a moment where you realized the importance of it or is it more in hindsight now you think that self-awareness is an important trait i don't think you would have heard me being as specific about it until i sat down to write the book and that's the point where i tried to capture it in a more clearly explainable way i definitely have had conversations like that it's definitely something the military encourages but that uh, out of the five traits is more implicitly developed because people are so honest with you <laughs> and the people you're around rotate so frequently. One of the things I ran into in the reviewing research for the book was a, a phenomenon known as pro-social lying. And pro-social lying is when people lie to you to protect your feelings because they like you, uh, because they're trying to help you. Of course, that's appropriate in some situations. I mentioned the breakup or the 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 traumatic event metaphor. Yeah, five minutes later is not the time to tell the person you never should have been dating in the first place or that business idea wasn't going to work out and it was just a matter of time or that conversation needs to be had at some point, but not necessarily immediately. Whereas in the pro-social lying, that type of protecting people's feelings is only going to happen when people know you well enough. In the military, because we cycle out your supervisors, your peers, the people you're in charge of, the, the people that train you, all your professional relationships, they are not so invested in your feelings. It's not that they don't care and they're just going to be jerks, but they're invested in, in the practical goal that we all share. So they're going to be honest with you in pursuit of that goal. And that kind of constantly cycling in fresh input, fresh opinions is incredibly helpful in developing self-awareness because it prevents people from being nice to you in a way that's helpful in the moment, but hurts you down the road. Yeah, that's definitely something I very much appreciate from like anyone around me. They're honest with me and just, because I think it's actually more damaging and less brave of a person not to say what the thing is because they're too scared to say it. But now you're left doing the same, making the same mistakes. Yeah, and, and yeah. It, it can be a nuanced judgment. So sometimes you have people who aren't aware of a flaw. Sometimes you have people who have been made aware of that flaw, but don't think it's a flaw. Sometimes you have people who know about it, have acknowledged it, and are working on it, but that work isn't working. So you have to tailor your approach. And this may sound like a lot of work, but these are small adjustments. You have to adjust your approach to deal with each of those situations. Because those are very different kinds of people. The person who's like, not only is that not a flaw, I am amazing. Like, ah, okay, that's a, that's a whole different challenge compared to somebody who's like, you know, I... I need to be more confident, um, but I raised my hand at this meeting and then I pulled it back down because I decided somebody else took my idea and I didn't have a, you know, people who are kind of going through the process. 
So you have the, there's going to be a lot of individual sort of customizations to it. But honestly, most people don't get to the point where most people just need to get off the launch pad with this stuff. It's not as if they're, they're lost in the nuances of it. A lot of it is just getting started on these processes at all. Okay. So how can you become more self-aware? You have to create an environment around the people who know you where they know it's okay to be honest with you. And you have to take over. That doesn't mean it's funny. One of the research, uh, one of the papers I read, uh, it talked about somebody who was a, a researcher solely in this area. And it said she would invite a friend out for a like blunt honesty dinner. And the entire dinner had to be like, that's, that's a little much. Part of me is like, that's what you get for being friends with this kind of person is you get invited to these kinds of dinners. You kind of know what the deal is, right? <laughs> so when I say create an environment, I don't mean you have to like be, you have to redefine your friendships to be based on this. But you pick moments, most people know, if they take the time to think about it, when their friends are and are not being honest with them. And I don't mean being overtly lying, but kind of holding back and saying something neutral instead. So... When you, just saying you specifically me, anyone, when you need advice, when you know something's gone wrong, professionally, personally, that's when you say, hey, you can be honest with me. And after they are honest with you, so creating environment one is soliciting the feedback. Two is responding to it in a way that it also creates that environment. People will come up with the craziest crap. Even people you like or trust who know you will give you some of the most off base, clearly wrong advice. You don't tell them that, right? I think, oh, it's interesting. I, I hadn't heard that before. You know, tell me a little more about it. Not in like an artificial way. You're not hosting a talk show with them. But you want to encourage people because even wrong advice is useful because that's how that person views you. And even if that view isn't accurate, they may not be the only person that views you that way. So in that way, all feedback is good feedback. Because even if it's not factually accurate in the sense that like, no, I started this job two years ago, not six months ago. So, you know, this changes the equation about why I made the decision that we're talking about. It's still useful to know because they have somehow gotten that impression in their minds. So short answer, create an environment by both soliciting feedback at specific times where it's most valuable and responding to that feedback in a way that encourages more feedback in the future. We've all heard about relationships, professional or personal. Where somebody is honest with somebody and the person who got the honest feedback, like, is dismissive or angry or freaks out. Well, who's going to yeah. want to talk to that person again, right? Like, why bother if you're just going to have it thrown back in your face in some sort of frustrated manner, even if that frustration is reasonable? That's not the way to move forward. So, yeah, purposefully creating an environment where feedback is given and valued, even if it's not followed. I definitely think that second point is very valid because that's the thing that people need to understand like you want this feedback just to flood in and if you put any barrier up of like anger it will stop the flood yeah it's like we and said the pro-social lying might... is a barrier i'm glad you used the word barrier that's a good way to think of it uh, pro-social lying is a barrier people will know you and like you and don't want to hurt your feelings um but there's a lot of other barriers people can put up as well and trying to you don't have to get rid of them you don't have you don't have to turn your life into a feedback collecting exercise that never ends. But it's all about identifying areas where, you, where it matters the most to you to improve and ensuring that you're willing to listen to people and that you, you encourage them to talk in the first place. Yeah, that's a great point. Before we come on to talking more about um, the next traits, I'm just fascinated with... Um, to be speaking to someone who's been to Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, please and ask any questions you have. I'm happy to, happy to discuss. So you left. So let's say it's like a, you're in the building with a bombed out room. You're leaving to do like whatever the mission for that day is. So are you like, is it like in the movies when you're, you're jumping in Humvees and driving around the city? Are you just going out on foot patrol? Are you going into alleyways that you don't know what's in there? Is it being reconned? Like, Tell me about uh, a mission. Sure. So there's basically two types of missions. One is the sort of thing that is done um, regularly. So you're not responding to any specific threat. You're not after any specific target. It's just you go out there because going out there is helpful. You're, you're, you're regular patrols, right? So those are, they're like what you said, they're, you're, they're on foot or you're, you're mounted, as they say, not a horse anymore. 
um, you're in a vehicle. And usually, depending on where you are, there's a minimum number of people you have to take with you where it's seen as safe to go. So depending on how dangerous the environment is, they may say you need four trucks and, I don't know, 12 guys, 15 guys. So you go out, you leave the base, and usually you pick where you're going based off of nobody's been there in a little while. Or something's been going down there. And even though we're not after anything specific today, we're going to walk around. We're gonna, if I'm with you. We're going to talk to some people. And we're just going to try to get more information about what's going on. So that's sort of the regular, that's like the, the housekeeping type of thing where it just needs to happen regularly. It's not addressing, you know, any specific problem necessarily. But you're building relate you're building awareness of how everything is. You're building relationships if you go out and talk to people. So that if you do have to go out unexpectedly in response to something, um, you know, maybe some other soldiers are in trouble, you're going to help them. Then you're you've got some knowledge of your everybody's given an area of operations. That's your that's your your piece of the pie. And you got to be knowledgeable about that. The other types of missions are less frequent. Well, it depends on your job. Um, the other types of missions are less frequent where you're going after a specific target. You're searching a specific area. It doesn't have to be one person or one house. It could be, hey, this neighborhood has been a problem. So we're going to just search some houses, not in like an angry way. We're not busting in any doors or anything, but we're going to knock and we're going to say, hey, you know, we're searching for this particular type of, you know, could be weapons, could be explosives. That kind of thing is being smuggled or kept there. So again, it's it, you, you, that is there's more planning that happens ahead of time because you have to be a lot more specific. You're more likely to face some kind of attack. Now, attacks obviously happen randomly. The We got attacked one time on the way to a promotion ceremony, which I didn't want to go to because uh, I'm like, I why am I going to this ceremony? But my boss, who was a good guy and hooked me up in other ways, was like, we need to meet that minimum number of people. So I need you to come with me on this. And all right, fine. Promotion ceremony of who? Uh, just a guy in my unit. He wanted to be promoted. You know the big cross okay. swords in in Baghdad. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. He wanted to get promoted in front of those, and so uh. we went out there, and then we almost got blown up by a type of IED. I was like, man, if I had died going to your fucking promotion, excuse my French, uh, your promotion ceremony, I would have been, I would have, I would have haunted you forever. So luckily, that did not happen. Nobody, the the bomb went off between trucks. Nobody got blown up, but I was. That's a whole different story, but the, um, but yeah, so you'll, you, that is unusual to go out for something dumb like that. That was just, just somebody had a dumb idea. Nice guy, great soldier, dumb idea. And yeah, so those are broadly speaking how it works. Two types of things, either the regular housekeeping type of thing, or that you're, you're trying to, to get a particular guy or thing or solve a specific problem type of thing. How come you, so first you wanted to be a journalist, then you decide to join the army, then you been to Afghanistan and now you're sitting here talking to me very candidly with a positive mindset about everything you're talking about. So has it always been like that? Or when you first, were there any points when you were like, oh shit, what have I got myself into? Um, or have you always been able to like rise above it a bit? Most of the time I've been able to. No, don't get me wrong. I have been frustrated. I've been angry. I have, I have um, definitely questioned decisions in the you, I have never questioned my decision to join the army because I needed it, frankly. Um, I had a decent amount of ability and no no ability to channel it, use it in a way that was structured or effective. So the army gave me that structure. And the army is way, one of the reasons I wrote the book is the army is way more freeform, improvisational, funny, like random than people realize. The part of your career where you get yelled at by somebody if you make even the tiniest mistake is a couple weeks long, is maybe three months long. Maybe a little longer, depending on your job field. But then it ends quickly. And all of a sudden, you are trusted on some level, just a little at first, but not zero. And you have to make your own decisions. You have to start developing that autonomy. So, oh, yeah, when I first said I was going to join the Army, people thought I was nuts. I was a video game journalist as an undergrad. That's how, that's, <laughs> that's how soldiery I was, like a day-to-day level. So, yeah, nobody, was seeing, nobody saw this coming. But it was a massive gap in my set of skills, a massive one. I was like, okay, these people have something I don't and something I value and something I really feel like I need to develop. So journalism was, my experience in journalism, it's been what, a little more than dabbling, but not, it's never been my, my serious over a long period of time first job. If you can write well, you can sort of just uh, skate through a lot of other things. And that's always dangerous when you're in any type of career field where talent is Talent causes other people to forgive you flaws that they probably shouldn't. 
And part of the reason they do is because what we were just talking about with feedback. A lot of times, especially if people are good at one thing, they don't want to hear, they don't want to hear criticism. You know, did I just write this thing? Did I just, you know, land this deal? Did I just do this? Well, well, yeah, but there's all these other things you could improve too. The military, no one skill is going to be so important that it absolves you of developing in other ways. You have to have a complete set or as complete a set as possible. Not perfect, right? But there's no such thing as being so smart or so tough or so brave or so technically skilled that you get away with neglecting other areas completely. And that kind of well-roundedness helps a lot because what you just mentioned in your question, why do people get frustrated? Why do people have reason to question how they got there in the first place? How do you stay upbeat? If you've got those other skills to fall back on, because if you're building your tower on that one narrow foundation, even if that tower is tall and beautiful, the moment that gets messed with, do you have other things? Like when, when I had, when I was in situations where either um, my main skill set didn't matter or I messed up and made a mistake in that main skill set. Because just because it's your main skill set doesn't mean you're flawless at it. I had other things to fall back on because the military encourages that kind of broad development. And I think that helps a lot with being able to sit in front of you and tell these stories and having gone through these things and, and keep a positive mindset about it. Because who knows what tomorrow brings, man, right? There's, there's a million different things and you know a million different challenges that can happen. But if you develop a background sort of persistent set of, of abilities to deal with challenges in general, regardless of the specific nature of that challenge, you're going to be as best situated as possible to deal with whatever happens, however unexpected it is. So I think that that's why I'm able to do that is that sort of broad base of development. Did you have uh, a role model or an idol or someone who you looked up to and you're like, that guy really has all these things about him that he just does amazingly. My drill sergeant. And one of the interesting things about that is most of the time, somebody asked me that uh, previously once and I said, no. And the reason I said no was because I was only around my drill sergeant for what was, I think base training was nine weeks long when I went through it. Nine weeks, that's it. I don't know his first name. Never, never had a, a counseling session with him. Never had like a you know mentorship thing where we sat down and talked in depth. No, but he personified a certain type of value. So obviously, when you, what do we associate drill sergeants with? Like stern, blunt discipline. This drill sergeant, three days into basic training, came into a room where we were struggling to do a basic task because we were disorganized, not because we were apathetic. And he looks at us and he says, work smart, not hard. And then just leaves, just leaves like a movie character or like a superhero, just like flies away. And like Batman really is what it is. You turn around, he's just gone. <laughs> And so we were just sat there left to think about what he said, work smart, not hard. Here's a guy who's associated stereotypically with, with hard, hard work, maximum effort, maximum intensity. And he just told us, stop, stop working so hard, work smart. So his ability to both personify the stereotypical strengths of a, of a soldier in terms of just intensity and toughness, but also be strategic and be, be clever, not smart and clever about how he approached challenges. That's why... I, I think of him now when somebody asks me about role model. Never saw him again after those nine weeks, but here I am 20 years later talking about the, the a, a story. I mean, he probably said that shit like 500 times to people, right? But it, <laughs> but I was in the room that one time. It was the only time I heard it, and I'd never heard it before, and it still stuck, stuck with me to this day. That's great. So what's the second trait then? So the, the second trait is initiative, and it is all about getting out of habits and avoiding inertia. So obviously initiative out of the five traits, four of them are words that people use normally, right? And one of the challenges of, of writing the book and of translating these lessons was how do you add some meat to that bone that everybody's seen before? So initiative specifically, the, the story that I lead off with about that is the military talk about basic training. Because the book, I try to avoid combat stories since we talked about earlier. It's not going to be as easily applicable to day-to-day -day life. Military, basic training. One of the most emblematic, famous parts of basic training was this thing colloquially referred to as the shark attack, where a bunch of drill sergeants would come in and they'd yell at people. And the idea was it was like a shock and awe thing to kind of make a clean cut with people's previous identity and just be like, we are in charge now. Now, there was no scandal, right? Not only was it a high profile, like, 
sort of culturally valued part of basic training. But there was no scandal. There's no problem. Nothing. Nobody fell, fell over and died in the middle of it. The military got rid of it. They took the initiative to get rid of it, despite not having any external factor that forced them to. But what they realized was it was demoralizing more than it was helping. The shark attack came into being in Vietnam when there was a program to take people who were going to go to jail otherwise and say, hey, you can join the army instead because we needed people in the army. And the shark attack was created to take these people that would have been in jail. So the proper time about people who are maybe older, maybe more violent, maybe more um, individualistic and to assert military authority over them. It's been 50 years, right? And that was still, for most of those 50 years, the way we did things. But they took the initiative to take a step back and review without any kind of emergency happening. They didn't let it get to that point. Hey, this is a thing that, that is having a quiet but significant negative effect. So they, they identified that on their own and they fixed it of their own initiative. So that's why initiative is one of the traits. That kind of proactivity not just being the first person to raise your hand or volunteering for things. Those are meaningful examples of initiative also, and I do touch on those in the book. But taking the initiative to find better ways, even when you're not forced to do so. Some people might push back on that yeah. and say, John, my I've got 17 different things to think about my business. Someone's just quit. I don't have time to think of new ways to do things or just the fact that I don't like you might go through a six month period where you don't get a chance to look up. Is there a way that you can bring yourself, or I, I suppose making that a habit instead of like something you'd like to do? Me personally, I find other people to be incredibly important in this process. And now you don't want to put a burden on other people where they, you, they get the feeling that you're unofficially hiring them as their life coach, but you want to be able to, if you don't have the bandwidth, at that point, you need to take the initiative to look at how can I do less? I mean, this basic training thing was removed from what was happening. So it wasn't as if they added something more to the schedule. They weren't looking at their, their current commitments and adding one more thing on top of it. They were looking at it and removing a thing that didn't have the value that they thought it had. So in that case, that's a good point, though. I'm glad you brought that up because initiative can sound like it's always adding something to your plate, right? It's always that volunteering, doing more, doing something earlier. But it doesn't have to be. It's just taking the initiative to review where you're at instead of allowing inertia to just continue taking you forward. So in the, in the instance of somebody that's that's busy you know, and they're in the early stages or they have a successful business, you know, just different kinds of busy. If you are at that stage, then it's about doing a review, not some sort of um, deeply time-consuming one, but doing a review of your commitments and looking at where can you take the initiative to change or remove some of those instead. You've clearly got, you're quite, uh, you seem like very empathetic about people and understanding human psychology. Were there any points in your service where you had a conversation with someone in Arabic and it opened your mind or really stuck with you? Like what they said? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, let's, all right, here's one example. So we go to, okay, so there's a structure to gathering intelligence. And that structure exists for a reason. One of those reasons is that you don't have two people doing the same thing. Not everybody follows the rules. And I don't mean break the law type of not follow. I mean just stay in the, the system type of follow. So we're not doing each other's work and stepping on each other's toes. So as a result of this person having a little too much initiative, they we end up at this house where a supposed terrorist lives. There's a supposed stash of weapons at this house. So we look around. These houses aren't huge, right? This isn't, you know, this isn't Beverly Hills. This isn't Baghdad. So we don't see anything. And one of these people's like, well, maybe they're hiding it in the floor. And I'm like, they're not hiding. This is not a, the level of funding this operation has is not a hide things in the floor level of funding. Like that is not happening. You've watched too many movies. So I'm frustrated that I walk out and there's this guy across the street kind of, you know, Sometimes people will watch what we do. Sometimes people are just, they're over it. And when we drive by, it's not a big deal. This guy was watching pretty intently. So I go over to talk to him and he kind of gives me that, like, I want to talk to you vibe. So I start talking to him in Arabic and he's like, why are you guys over there? And I give him a short, you know, version appropriate for outside the military. And he's like, yeah, that guy, he's a poser. He keeps trying to join this militia, but they won't have him. He's like annoying. Nobody wants to be around him. I was like, what? I never thought. 
about these militias that try to, you know, often kill people, having posers, having hangers on, having people that pretend to be in the militia for clout, but who aren't actually terrorists. And that's what this guy was. We found nothing at this house, right? So I talked with this guy and he's like, yeah, he's, he's just a, he's a, he'll, he talks like he's in the militia, but we all know he's not actually, he's tried, but they keep kicking him out. And eventually they said that just stop coming back. So we had a guy that wasn't like, wasn't qualified to be a terrorist and wasn't allowed in the terrorist group. And that's a whole, like I, a whole type of person I would have never thought existed until I was talking to this guy across the street and getting that information about why there were no guns in this house. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. I love thinking like that about, because you just, like, you hear like the Taliban and you just assume that's the thing. But if you think about what's, what it's like from their perspectives and what's made them do what they do, it's just fascinating. Can you strongman the case for why a sort of Taliban fighter or terrorist in those countries, what, what is their aim and what are they thinking? Um, so there's a couple of different categories, all right? So the, at the top of their pyramid is usually the true believer. Like they really do want to murder everyone who doesn't believe in God the same way they do. And they're perfectly willing to take away the freedom of everyone else on the planet in the name of that, right? They are exactly what they appear to be. And then you have the next tier down, which are sort of the hardcore zealots but if the Taliban didn't exist, they probably wouldn't have made it up on their own. Like, they're on board with the dictator doing dictator things. But they wouldn't, without the Taliban, they would just be, you know, the dictator of their family or their neighborhood at most. They wouldn't actually be picking up guns and, and forcing people to live that way. And then you get to people who are younger, who are, it could just be that they're, they're looking for meaning. There's a fair amount of that among younger recruits to these types of organizations. Um, they are attracted to power. Sometimes you get a lot of people uh, who don't know anything about the supposed, it doesn't have to be, it's religious for the Taliban, but it doesn't have to be. Dictatorships are based off all kinds of different ideologies. They don't actually know anything about the supposed ideology, right? They, they couldn't give you two Quran verses if you read them both out to them five minutes earlier. But they're just um, sociopaths or psychopaths and they just like violence and they like the idea of being in control of other people. So yeah, it, it, it runs the gamut from people who are true believers in the supposed mission of organizations like that to people who just like power to people who just were looking for meaning. And there's not, there's not always a lot going on in these places. So, and I say that not because I'm trying to like encourage sympathy because if you join the Taliban, you join the Taliban and it is what it is. Like, just because you had a sympathetic reason for doing so does not mean you get treated any differently. But if our goal is to make people stop joining that type of organization, you got to understand why people do it. And it's important to think about, we talked earlier about customizing your approach, right, to different types of people. And if you, you need to be at least be aware of those differences. So broadly speaking, those are the, the types of folks you find in, in uh, groups like that. Yeah, that's interesting. And also, you have to think, like, do, uh, actually, what do you think? Do you think if... Say you took me out of London and planted me in Afghanistan, edge zero, edge dot. Mm -hmm. how, how likely would an average person be in that society to go down that route? A lot more so. Environment matters. Yes. You know, I, I joked earlier about uh, growing up with my grandma. Like, it, my life path would definitely look different. Not better, different, worse, different. I don't know. If I had grown up in like more of a normal family unit, it's hard to say. But it's easy to say it would be different. It's just hard to say how. So yeah, it's one of those things where the the culture matter, culture matters, environment matters. And while you don't want to use those things as excuses and you don't want to get into the point where, you know, cultures start pointing fingers at each other and getting, you know, discriminatory, but you know, every culture has its problems, not every culture has that type of problem. So there are definitely ways in which that part of the world and specific, it can just, it can be regions within a province within a country. It doesn't have to be countries as a whole, even though that's a unit of measure we frequently use, you know, when discussing these places. But yeah, the, it absolutely would be different. It took you or me or somebody not from that region plopped us in there. You know, it, there are definitely people I know who are more prone to, there's people who are more individualistic, people who are more prone to joining groups, you know, people who are shy and people who given the chance will take power and, even in like awkwardly in social situations. Like, and I think that some of those inherent traits would still drive them to particular outcomes. But I think that the, 
it's still massively important where you are. Yeah, I think people should bear that in mind a lot more just when considering um, approaching other, all these like really tricky world global issues involving different cultures. I, I feel like we're all the same deep, deep, deep down. And it'd be nice if people approach it with more like open-mindedness. Oh yeah, that was one of the parts of getting to Iraq, especially in Arabic language. I'm like, oh, these are just people. Like they're just regular people. Now they're in extraordinary circumstances. So they, even regular people can do things they wouldn't normally do, but they're still regular people. So yes, the dial might be cranked up, but you need, but it's important to recognize that they, they fall on the same general spectrum of human nature as people anywhere else. Maybe a war zone's a war zone. That's really but interesting. Yes, I, I agree with you that having that kind of, because it's both morally and practically important. It's morally important because it's easy to judge people, especially when they're at a place, uh, literally or metaphorically, where they're struggling. Uh, but it's it's morally important to avoid doing that unless you have a good reason. It's practically important because if you want to change what's going on there, you know, it's, be, one, the main reason I wrote the book was when I rolled into law school, I I had Free judgment. Who wants some judgment? I was just dealing out judgment, you know, like it was, a, you know, my day job, and that was not an effective strategy. <laughs> and it doesn't matter whether I was completely right or completely wrong about any of those individual judgments. But taking the step back to understand where people were coming from more, in the same way that you mentioned about looking at these other countries, is extremely important because. Yeah, it's important, as you mentioned, in other countries, but people who are in the same country as you can also have very different personalities and circumstances. You may end up working at a desk next to them and understanding where they're coming from is just as important as building empathy ac across you know, civilizations. Do any of, your, any of the traits in the book relate to helping you deal with conflict with people in your organization or workplace or family? Yes. So probably the most on point out of those is the last trait, which I call uh, insistence. Yeah. And what insistence is, I've never heard that word before. Right. That's four out of the five are relatively common words. And the yeah. Yeah. Is not, this is the, this is the is not. So what, yeah, okay. what insistence is, is the willingness to set and enforce boundaries and standards. Interesting. Because most people, whatever, wherever they may fall on the spectrum of, you know, giver or taker, uh, individual or group member, whatever they're, their natural proclivities are. You can go too far. Anything that's a virtue, like that old joke, that, that homily that everything is a poison in a sufficiently large dose, like you have to realize that even something that's a virtue has to have limits to it. Even if you're the most empathetic, helpful person, you volunteer for every last organization in the world, you're going to tire yourself out. So you have to be able to set limits and boundaries. And the military is very good at helping people by having objective standards that you're supposed to meet. So you can point and you say, hey man, this isn't my personal judgment, but that thing you're doing, it's not how it needs to be done. And it is incredibly important to do that. That is probably the number one thing I saw people struggle with is learning to set standards and to enforce boundaries. And it's funny because a lot of the research involving this in the workplace now involves people who are high performers, but with bad social skills, they're jerks, um, they're selfish, whatever. And it has been shown repeatedly that all you have to do to start reining people in who have some kind of socially destructive trait, you don't even have to check them. As long as they see someone else being held accountable by a standard or a boundary of some sort, it will immediately start to have an, a broader effect. So in the workplace, they don't even have to be the one that gets in trouble. They just look over and they see like Bob was being a jerk. Bob got in trouble that will already encourage other people who have the same toxic trait to stop acting like that. It's not going to solve everything. Obviously people don't magically not get toxic in you know five minutes because their guy down the hall got in trouble. But that is the one that deals with conflict the most because conflict usually comes from people being on, well, it comes from a few different ways, but the, the best way to explain it is, I, I, let me put it this way actually. Let's say there's two types of conflict. One is about the personality traits of the people involved. One is about the subject that the conflict is about. And absent that subject, there wouldn't be conflict. You don't need to worry about that one as much, right? It's a stressful deal. It's a stressful situation. You give it a day, everybody's going to be fine. 
The type of conflict I'm talking about is more based off the type of people involved than the situation they're in. So mm -hmm. it is extremely That's important. That's the worst one. Right? Yeah. But the, it's the most destructive <laughs> type. And the way to avoid that is for the, and usually you have people who are more prone to cause that type of conflict. People who are more aggressive, more selfish, um, or just have bad social skills. They don't have to be bad people. I've definitely had a talk with um, one guy in the army. We were in Afghanistan and we needed a thing from someone. And the person brought us the thing. And my coworker didn't like the way the thing had been handled. And he was very, he was maybe a little on the spectrum, but he was very sort of like dismissive unintentionally. And when he left and when the person with the thing left, I turned to him, I'm like, do you not want them to ever help us again? Like, <laughs> because the way you handle that, they're, they're, they're going to find every excuse in the world to not help us. And he's like, what do you mean? So sometimes you get people who just don't know they're doing it. But even with people like that, whether it's intentional or not, you have to reinforce with them that there's a boundary. There's a standard for how we handle situations like this. And you have to be willing to check. Basically, you have to be willing to accept a bit of short-term awkwardness to prevent future conflict. You have to be willing to accept some short-term awkwardness. You have to risk the pushback that comes from enforcing a boundary. You have to. Otherwise, people will just continue to do the same thing they're getting away with. So that is the trait in the book, Insistence, that is most directly related to dealing with conflict. Because most of the time that conflict comes from people exceeding the boundaries of effective behavior and getting too frustrated, getting too aggressive. And the solution to that is pulling them aside and saying, hey, I understand where you're coming from. If you do, don't bullshit people. But you can't handle it like this. So that that is the, the summary of the trait that best deals with conflict. Interesting. And if you, let's say you work, you, you're working in a big corporation which has its culture already ingrained, um, and if it doesn't fit with you individually, how do you set boundaries potentially to people above you? Or is that something you shouldn't or can't do? Like, do, have you sort of a way to communicate to someone the way you've just given me that order or asked me to do that task? That's not how I do things. Do you know what I mean? Like oh, I know exactly what you mean. We're talking about down, top down, but what about going bottom up? So two, is there a way to do two that? Two things there. First, if you're at a place with a set culture, and if that set culture, some there are some workplace, the, the tolerance for conflict in different workplaces can be vast, right? Different industries, different organizations within the same industry. There is one of the skills that matters is acceptance. And sometimes what you can do is only keep things from bothering you if you cannot change them, one. And you, it is worth the overall price to pay for continuing to deal with them, two. Then you need to be able to put take that difficult part of things and put it in a little box and put it off to the side. So if you have a great job that is where you want to do, where you want to live, what you want to do, you're making good money, there's a good career path forward, but your boss is a jerk can't change that. You have a decision to make. That's the price you're paying. Do you want to keep paying? There's no wrong answer. It's up to every individual to decide how they weight these different variables. But if you want to stay, and if you're, to get back to your example, if you're in an organization that has a culture that is not a natural fit for you, you either accept it or you leave. But accepting it can't mean eternal suffering. So you need to be able to say, you need to be able to brush it off. I've definitely been around people and organizations that didn't have the same approach that I did. And the solution was keeping a little inner space to myself and just kind of, kind of, uh, not, not, uh, out loud, not, not visibly shrugging and kind of joking to myself. Like that was an interesting way to approach that and just not letting it bother me. But the two, the two criteria I gave you were the first was that you can't change it. All right. So try and change it first. Managing upwards is difficult. Managing upwards to somebody who is extremely aggressive is even more so. It's going to go one of two ways. Aggressive people are either bullies or they are aggressive and they kind of respect aggressiveness in others. The only way to find out which one is to stick up for yourself, not in a conflict inviting way, but in a way that says, 
Oh, actually, all right, let's say somebody comes to you and is very dismissive. You say, no, I can handle that. I've got it. Don't worry about it. Like in a way that doesn't focus on pushing back against them, but focuses on establishing your own competence, your own, that you should be respected and build yourself up without going after them. If they, if that works, then they will start to respect you as your own little center of gravity and not somebody for whom aggressiveness is appropriate. If it doesn't work, they'll just continue to be a dick. And then you have to decide <laughs> whether it's worth paying yeah. the price. So in terms of specific strategy to deal with managing upwards for people who are not sort of respecting you, then you have to be willing to establish yourself and stick up for yourself, but find ways to do it that are more about your own competency than trying to change them or criticize them. So it's defensive, not offensive, basically. Exactly. Exactly. It's more about um, making a great play and then just letting the scoreboard talk or even or even like bringing up the score sheet later than it is, you know, when you see sports making a great play and then pointing at the other guy being like, you know, you suck or some other taunt. Like <laughs> there's ways because it's it's very much um, it's almost martial artsy where you use people's force against them. And just meeting force with force, that's such a way, that's such a direct route to conflict. It's so unlikely to work. And I'm a very, like, I'm an extrovert and I enjoy blunt, semi-sarcastic ways of talking. But what matters is what's effective, not what I enjoy. So when I deal with somebody who is also an extrovert and also blunt, the blunt on blunt thing isn't going to work necessarily. So my job is to sit back and let them kind of get it out of their system, let them have a hearing let them feel like they are a serious part of things. And then to look for ways to advocate for myself that aren't in direct conflict. What do you think from your experience is the biggest trait, well, the most useful trait that a civilian could bring into their lives that is championed in the military? Willingness to, it, to, to mention something we already talked about, it's that self-awareness. It's the first trait for a reason. It's not required for the others, but it helps. It's going to make all the others a lot easier to get to. It is so important to be willing to accept and act on feedback and to cultivate feedback, the type, the type of environment that we talked about building earlier. I think that's the number one thing because for most people, you are the biggest obstacle. And if you get yourself right, if you get into a place where you're really aware in pursuing your strengths and you're aware and working on your weaknesses, things will fall into place. People will gravitate towards you in the situations where you want them to. You'll be able to do a good job professionally wherever you're at. Other things will fall into place if you can get that self-awareness in order. But if you can't, then everything else becomes real complicated. Like we mentioned with um, managing upwards and, and, uh, combative workplaces. You have to be aware of the, one of the questions that gets asked in basic training all the time is that's where people are like, why am I here? I had a good time in basic training. I didn't mind it, but I definitely had people who were like, why am I here? And you have to remember the reason why you did something sometimes. And part of that is self-awareness and knowing, okay, why am I in this company? It's not a good co fit culturally for me. Well, literally, why are you there? Go back to the original reasons you made that decision. Those reasons can sometimes disappear. If you take a good paying job, it's a good paying job and now you're there. And it's very easy to think about when you didn't have one before or when you worked at a place that was gonna, I worked at a law firm that was gonna get wound down because it was part of a nonprofit and structurally it didn't make sense, blah, blah, blah. So it's easy before the, when you, when you leave a situation like that to forget you were ever in it and to sort of take for granted the benefits that you have from your current situation. But being aware- Yeah, that's a great point. Being aware of those things is extremely important. And it doesn't mean that you accept every last thing that happens later, but you have to give proper weight to why you're there in the first place. And that's another part of self-awareness is thinking about, okay, what caused me to come here in the first place? If that's changed, maybe you make a change. But man, self-awareness, very rarely do I find people who are high functioning for self-awareness who struggle deeply overall. How, what, if someone's listening, they're like, um, they think they're self-aware, how do they measure or what's a litmus test for am I self-aware? Because it's kind of like a circular. No, loop. you're right. As you're saying, I'm self-aware, but I like, but if you think you're self-aware and you're not, 
How do you know you're right? not? Fish <laughs> know they're underwater, right? So the yeah. surrounded by it. Start small. Start with something specific that is a source of dissatisfaction or stress or strain for you. That's the that's the that's the place to start. Find that you know when you're checking out a car, if everything is running great, everything's running great. But you want to look for the thing. You know there are things that need changing regularly, but. You want to look for something because usually the way lack of self-awareness manifests itself, right? How does it actually become a problem? How does this notional theoretical thing become a real actual problem? Usually it's because you're, you're in conflict with someone. You're in, dissatisfied about something. There's th that, that has rubbed up against something in a way that's causing stress. So that's what I would recommend people. If you think you're self-aware and you're killing it, but man, this one guy at work doesn't seem to be willing to to team up with you on projects or you're, man, I've been single for a while and haven't been able to fight or man, but this, you know, we got some family drama, which different category, but also useful to, to look at. That is where the potential unknown lack of self-awareness is actually manifesting. So that's the place to start. So you start with the places where you have issues. Basically. Yeah. Any kind of frustration, any kind of dissatisfaction can be minor. And for me, it's when I went to the, this, the genesis of this was, like I said, going to law school and being on a completely different page than all the other students. And at first, I just sort of judged them, and I, I was fine. But at one point, but it started to get frustrating um, that I felt like, you know, I wasn't connecting with people. And so that's what caused me to take a step back and start to look at why. Why wasn't I connecting with people? Independently, my approach and their approach to life were perfectly valid. And it wasn't required. For either of us to try to cross that gap or build that bridge but i wanted to do so and i was frustrated that it that it hadn't happened by default and i realized that's not how things work <laughs> and that's where i started to dig into my lack of self-awareness about the, the the just how ineffective my approach to dealing with my classmates was amazing that's very yeah you're very impressive right, no, John. thank you i really appreciate you taking the time to come on no thank you for having me um, it's been it's been an interesting conversation hopefully there's been some nuggets that people can uh can benefit from and they'll they'll take a look at the book if so yeah i'm sure they have because there's two traits we've not talked about so right, gotta leave them if something. people are interested yeah so where the books on amazon yeah right? the books on amazon just uh search for how to deal with damn near anything and uh that should pop up and if people want to connect with you, LinkedIn, Twitter, what's LinkedIn your is the best way. I have my, my Twitter is criminally underused. I use it to look at sports news, um, but that's about it, especially with some of the recent changes. Cough, <laughs> cough. So, nope, link, LinkedIn is the best way to track me now. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It. Cheers, man. Cheers.